HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode has been brought to you by Roberta's, located at 261 Moore Street in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. For more information, visit www.robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in the rhythm and him. It's gonna get you sun in the air. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. Every year, about 20 days before Christmas, we get to celebrate another very special holiday. Today is the 79th anniversary of the repeal on Prohibition. And in the studio today, I have one of the newest members on my team over at Prime Meats, uh, a hardcore tiki, aficionado, tiki cocktail aficionado and uh, all-around great bartender, Garrett Richard. Welcome to the show. Happy repeal day, Dan. Happy repeal day. Glad to have you here, man. So, um, I mean, I guess we're talking about Prohibition today. i can't think of anything else we can talk about no i think we are required by law (laughs) yeah exactly exactly so um just getting into it first of all there was to me prohibition was like into like all of us who work in the industry or even just enjoy having a cocktail um it's one of the strangest weirdest like political like flubs in history to ever happen i mean it created a lot of a lot of like crime and things that uh, the government thought it was going to cut down on you know like a bunch of rambunctious behavior ended up it ended up actually making things a lot worse over 13 years yeah. well you know historically before that every law was an expansion of freedom mm-hmm. this was the one this was one that was not and usually most laws were based on some sort of biblical or historical morality and this was unprecedented it was going against thousands of years of human history and development and you know we had been drinking spirits for centuries and then you know wine and beer before that and suddenly it seems like out of nowhere it just happened but it was really it was an effort since the beginning of america to try and take that freedom away you know starting with the quakers and then with women's Christians group coming up and really trying to uh, 
give a dysfunctional answer to a dysfunctional society. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very dysfunctional answer. I mean, for sure. Because, I mean, granted, people were imbibing quite a bit more back then. I mean, you could say that. I mean, I know a lot of my friends are probably right on par with the the people back then about a century ago as far as what they take in. But, yeah, I mean, like, rather than figuring out a way to control that, you know, in a a proper way, uh, just getting rid of it altogether seemed like a very, very harsh... Uh, solution for you know family problems you know yeah i mean it was and it was touted as a solution to almost every interest group and the anti-saloon league really was the best lobbying effort that this nation has ever seen it really makes you know uh as ken burns said when he was uh, promoting his documentary it makes the nra look like child's play i mean it, (laughs) it uh to racists, you could say that it, you know, prevented blacks from getting the bottle and getting uppity. To um, blacks, it was in the uh, NAACP. It prevented, you know, people from being oppressed by the bottle. Uh, to anyone who feared German influence, you know, it uh, prevented those uh, German brewers from having power. I mean, any problem that you had with American society, the Anti-Saloon League had an answer, and it had to do with getting rid of alcohol, which, I mean, today, you don't really see a single issue that strong anymore. You know, there's uh, right-to-life issues, but really, this one answered everything, and it seemed like the solution, (laughs) but... Yeah. As you know, as we saw, it was created a lot of unintended consequences. Sure, I mean, just to, just to start out with, it, I mean, the illegal importing of booze and moonshining and you know speakeasies. I mean, we'll start out talk about you know the importation of uh, of these different alcohols from you know through Canada through Chicago. You know, everyone talks about Al Capone bringing booze in. I mean, it was coming from every direction, though, really. Any yeah, and, and in California, it uh, popularized tequila for a, an audience that really didn't want to have anything to do with the stuff beforehand. And, uh, you know, after Prohibition, Bean Crosby actually uh, imported Herodora to, uh, you know, a new audience that, you know, got support for it during uh, Prohibition because it was available and it was just a quick car ride away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You kind of think about that is like where would where would we be as like a modern society with the margarita being one of the most popular cocktails? It's one of the like three drinks that even if you don't drink or never had any interest in it, a six year old kid could tell yeah, you're you you're aware like, you're aware you're aware of a margarita, <laughs> you know, which is pretty funny. I mean, like and then like pisco, you know, was also being imported through like Northern California and like yeah, so San Francisco. Yeah, absolutely. So like there are all these. Uh, in a way, it's kind of cool that we were starting to get a lot of different types of alcohol because we were restricting ourselves. You know, we were definitely a nation that was like built on whiskey. We think about whiskey being our our main thing, whiskeys and rums, I guess you could say. But um, you know, with bourbon and rye being so popular, and eat, not just regular drinking, but like in cocktails, especially, you know, to take that away all of a sudden, you did actually open up the opportunity for these other spirits to come in and mix you know mix some cool drinks with them but yeah it's yeah i i think it's easy to say that prohibition happened the cocktail died and you know dark period but really i think you can see from distances now a benefit of prohibition which is it did open up people more to rum it opened up people to tequila and pisco as we're saying and then as we talked about earlier uh New York speakeasies really were able to reform the bar format and do new things because it wasn't a business. It was more of 
an underground social thing. And it's the original could, rave. Yeah, it was the original <laughs> rave, really. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I hope I never have those words come out of my lips again. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, essentially that's what it was. Yeah, the, you had some bars, uh, the Country Club, which was the original, uh, it was the spiritual ancestor to the BCC. It had a, uh, it was on, uh, I think on 48th, and it had a capacity of 400. It had a mini golf course, it had ping pong tables. I mean, a ping pong table in a saloon before that, I think you would be thrown out if you wanted to play ping pong. They would say, you know, go in the field yeah. and do that. <laughs> and then you had uh, some other places. Uh, Duke's, Duke was a... Uh, he was a uh, Manny pedicurist who decided to open up a speakeasy and would offer that service to people while you were getting hammered. I mean, it was the original beauty bar. That's, that's a good way of putting it, man. You've got all the answers to all the modern uh Yeah, no, they're all bars. just ripping off, uh, you know, speakeasies of the I earlier I would say influenced era. by. Yeah. <laughs> Not ripping off. But, yeah, I mean, what's interesting when you look at these old places is there really were different levels of speakeasy. There were... The personality-driven places like Dukes, and there was another uh, places uh, called the El Rey that had Python dancers and whatnot. So you had those speakeasies. And then you also had uh, ones that were gangster-run, which is the uh, popular mythos, and that definitely was there. But then you also had something called the Shock House, which were uh, very popular in the Bowery area. And that was the rot-gut drug den version of the speakeasy and actually in 1928 alone you had uh 700 deaths from you know rot gut uh poisonous booze right bathtub gins and just strange concoctions people are making in their uh their shacks out in the woods and then bringing them into the city and you know like we were saying before the show too you were saying uh uh new york city was actually like the epicenter of debauchery you know in prohibition during prohibition it, you know yeah, it was called I mean, Satan's Seat. Yeah, Chicago really takes the image because of Al Capone, but we had uh, an estimated uh, conservative estimate said 30,000 speakeasies, but uh, it was probably more around 100,000, which is I mean, 30,000 was double the amount of bars before Prohibition. So if it was anywhere near the liberal estimates, I mean, that's incredible. Sure. And nowadays we say that there's around 18,000 bars in uh, in New York City. So anywhere between 18 and 20, depending on what your definition of a bar is. So to have... A hundred thousand of them, you know, I, upwards of hundred thousand. That boggles the mind. That's but. crazy. That means, like, for as secretive as you were trying to be with a speakeasy, you could basically knock on almost every other door, every third door, and that would be a speakeasy. Yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of openly, uh, you know, open lawbreakers in New York. There was a there was a chain of cordial stores which. You know, had a very small facade of just like Coca Cola and ginger ale in in the window displays. But when you went in, booze was being sold out in the open. And actually, those cordial stores—I forget the name of the family that owned them—but they were one of the biggest financial supporters of the New York PD for good reason. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, the the popular uh, quote from that era from the Wets was that uh, Fiorello LaGuardia actually said that. Uh, you know, if you were to do prohibition in New York, you would need 250,000 cops and then 250,000 police to police the police. You yeah. know? <laughs> and that's true. And I think, uh, you know, going back to what we were saying before, how it created a lot more crime, of course, you know, you've got you got people like po- police officers, government officials being paid off so we can bring this stuff in. And it's kind of like, you know, 
just to appease like the uh, the popular uh, thought process back in the day, you know, and the the outlook on on imbibing. A lot of politicians probably were like, you know what? I don't really believe in this, but this is going to get me more votes, and I'll find a way to to get my drink on. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. And and there were a lot of people within the anti saloon league that, you know, were the biggest hypocrites themselves. I mean, it's uh, you get I, politicians haven't changed from then to now. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> easy to see, you know, the parallels. Yeah. Um, so there was also, uh, I mean. So prohibition lasted 13 years. Okay, it went into effect 1920. Uh, then you know, 79 years ago today, uh, 1933, it was uh, finally they finally gave that law the boot. Um, so, but that wasn't really the end of prohibition no, for a lot of no. Places. I mean, there, there, first of all, uh, before 1933, Colorado was the first state to. Uh, on a statewide level, to uh, bring back alcohol. And it's interesting in the last election that they brought back marijuana. I mean, it's interesting how history repeats itself. But what you saw after the repeal of Prohibition was there were still dry states. I mean, your home state, Oklahoma, 1959, they, they yeah. finally repealed Prohibition, 66 with Mississippi. And it, when you keep that in mind, you can really sort of understand, I think, the political landscape a little bit more. I mean, an oppressive law like that still existed in those states. You yeah, know, for absolutely, in the Bible most Belt. Most of the 20th century. Yeah. yeah. The Bible Belt was a lot wider back then. So yeah. <laughs> it took a lot, a lot more time to cinch it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, even for, like, I mean, a lot of times when you think about Colorado, you're not thinking about spirits. You think a lot about beer. I mean, you've got, like, uh, you know, Coors in, in Golden Colorado. And sorry, Golden Colorado. That's a huge, no, huge company. Yeah. So it's like, dude. I mean, I'm sure they were chomping at the bit to get back out there and, and make some money again. You know? Yeah. Well, that was the that was the other thing. I mean, you're in the middle of a Great Depression. You have much larger problems at hand, and a lot of people just looked around and said, you know, I think that there's bigger issues, and we're losing a lot of revenue. Um, but Going towards prohibition before it happened, uh, the 16th Amendment, the actual income tax, really helped the uh, dry argument out because the biggest contention against them was where is the revenue stream going to come from that we're losing? Our fifth largest industry is liquor. And it was the first tax to go into effect. Yeah, and the income tax was their answer. So (laughs) whenever you're doing your taxes on tax day, that's another sting of prohibition you can remember. uh, That was a dry plot. (laughs) Absolutely, man. I was thinking about that just the other day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You always have to have a drinking hand when you open up your paycheck. (laughs) Oh, bars do very well on uh, tax day. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, So... You know, just going back to that as well, like um, uh, before before prohibition, let's talk about that for a little bit, because um, to me there was a huge change in like we were talking about before about like the way that bars kind of were opened up to have their their unique kind of uh, style and theme, like the uh, putt putt golf, the, the, yeah. the country club, and the cobra dancers. Before prohibition, it was I mean obviously it was ramping up and it was getting it was getting a lot more fun <laughs> yeah i think there was a format though definitely yeah there and, was definitely and there was definitely you know no women allowed i mean unless you were a, a lady of the night you probably <laughs> were yeah, not but, in bars yeah, yeah so you look at like 15 13 15 years later and how much 
shutting down all the bars has changed bars in general. And uh, I mean, to some extent, that's cool. Uh, there's, a, I've been to a lot of really stupidly themed bars these days, but but at the same yeah, time, but, it's like you know, it when cool it's that it when it it's up. an innovation, it's well, not always, but it's usually done with care, yeah. you know, and. You know, some of these places they they had you know neon fountains and uh, beautiful uh, artwork that was never done before. So, they, so I think that having a sea change in at least design and feel was was right. Obviously, in drinks, no, but <laughs> we're learning that now. We're learning to do both, which is good. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, let's talk about uh, the modern speakeasy, as it were, and yes. uh, and uh, some of the styles and some of the di- big, big differences from back then to now. We'll be right back with Garrett Richards on Speakeasy. You're listening to Sweet Talk by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. I love that commercial. Best sweeper ever. <laughs> awesome. You're listening to the Speakeasy. I've got Garrett Richard from my bar, Primates. Yeah, Primates. Well, not my bar, but the, the one I work at <laughs> but uh we've been talking about uh prohibition as it turns out to be prohibition day or repeal day, repeal uh, day. 79 happy years freedom. yeah happy happy freedom absolutely <laughs> so right before the break we were talking about uh we started talking about like the differences between the speakeasies of uh the past to the quote-unquote speakeasies of today yeah the faux speakeasies i mean they brought cocktails back in the popular imagination i mean to I think a major extent, you know, bars like Milk and Honey employees only. I mean, they really were the progenitors of the modern cocktail movement. And, you know, I, it's funny, you know, a lot of people today, especially in new, in newer cities that are adopting sort of this format of bar believe it's a a generator of buzz, but you know, it's, it's interesting when you hear Sasha's story that a lot of the speakeasy stuff, you know, he is a huge fan of the 1920s, but a lot of it was just out of respect for uh, a uh, fellow friend who he was renting space from. I mean, that's why he soundproofed it. That's why he had a secret entrance. You know, it's it's funny how, you know, these things can uh, become a myth of their own even, you know, after uh, years of being open. Well, you know, the funny thing about it, too, is like we talk about like speakeasy cocktails and stuff like that. I mean, and 
the the idea, like the classicism of it, which I think to me actually priced in from the whole swing movement of the the nineteen nineties, you know. <laughs> and it was like Martini. Big time. bad voodoo daddy. Yeah, I, you know, I have a I have a dirty secret. I worked for a uh my, one of my first jobs was working for a uh, station that played a lot of that music. It was called <laughs> Fabulous 690, The Lounge in Los Angeles. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but like, you, you know, you can see where I'm coming from here. Like, that was like really the first movement to go back into like classic, like martini, like actual martinis rather than like the anything in a, a V shaped glass being a martini. Yeah, well, I like, mean, it was so out of style, it was in. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, after. Uh, parrot heads and disco shots sure. and what you know white russians something that's clear in a sexy glass i mean really does make a statement yeah absolutely um and you know there is a uh, an overwhelming like kind of classicism to that you know it's fun to like go back in time a little bit you know but uh if we were really legitimately going back in time to a speakeasy i mean the drinks were terrible you were getting a lot of rock cut like we were saying before there we were importing just whatever we could get. You were paying a big price for a cheap shot, you know. Yeah, it was it was overpriced in in a lot of cities. I think in New York, what happened is you had a price spike, and then you know as we you know as we said earlier, you had so many bars that it fairly regulated itself, but it definitely wasn't uh, prices pre prohibition. Yeah. That's for sure. So what's cool about the the quote unquote speakeasy bar nowadays is like you go there for like of course a kind of a classic uh, experience but also the drinks are great you know yeah, we, and it's a it's a form of escapism too yeah. it's throws back to that era but I mean like the original speakeasies sort of had exclusivity in mind more on the terms of protection not on having the right people and you know having a sort yeah. of nice ambiance uh, the uh, the owners of the Twenty One Club, uh, who were two cousins, they actually were not mob affiliated, and they had two bars before Twenty One. They had the Redhead and the Iron Gate, and they slowly learned their lessons over time that you have to let the right people in, or otherwise you're going to get roughed up by gangs or you know broken up by a rogue agent. Luckily, those two brothers had a lot of uh, cousins had a lot of friends in the federal government and on the New York police force but I mean that's probably why that bar has survived today and it's a nice yeah. it's a nice relic to have and it's I mean it's beautiful space yeah and you know another thing going back to the like the the new uh, cocktail recipes and I mean even with the classics for so long we we couldn't get like good vermouth and it, it was really hard to find rye, you know. So yeah. now you can actually make really amazing Manhattan cocktails, you know, in old fashions and all these things. Um, but something that we're seeing a lot more these days, I mean, and, you know, over the past, you know, seven, eight years, there are, there's a lot more of a culinary aspect going into cocktails and, like, quote-unquote, like, modern classics, you know. So where do you think that that stemmed from? I think that uh, a lot of it had to do with... Um during prohibition you had you didn't have access to alcohol if you wanted to do a legal mixology sort of project and i think soda fountains really took that in a uh, really unique and nice direction i mean before before prohibition there were soda fountains competing with bars that that is true and it, it's often a myth that they appeared after but um what a lot of people don't say is that they were competing with drugs, usually in the drink, something, you know, like cocaine or narcotic. And then the Pure Food and Drug Act passed in 1906. I believe it's 06. And, uh, 
you had these pharmacies that, you know, had to stick to the rules. But when they did, they actually made some, you know, pretty amazing concoctions. And thanks to Darcy O'Neill, we actually got to see some of them in his book, uh, Fix the Pumps. I mean, one of them is a, uh, I think it's called a heap of comfort. And it has, um, I mean, this sounds like it's straight out of Booker and Dax. It has uh, malted milk, clam bouillon, um, you know, lots of, uh, I think like a, uh, acid phosphate and uh, you know like cardamom tincture or something. I mean, they were definitely working with a lot of tools that other you know bartenders before weren't working with. And the extension of that is definitely the tiki cocktail. I think that the soda fountain is sort of the in between of the classic mixology era and then tiki drinks because tiki drinks essentially are you know besides being rum forward, they focus a lot on interesting syrups and sugars and spices. And that's basically what soda fountain drinks were, were really interesting syrups that were complex. Like uh, a simple cherry syrup was not cherries and sugar and water. It usually involved cherry, cherry bark extract. Sometimes almond. Yeah, almonds. They were definitely very complex. And what Trader Vic did is have his complex syrups and Don had his complex syrups and made incredible drinks with them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny because like the tiki... And we have talked quite a bit, you know, Tiki, Tiki Adam Kolasar comes on the show quite a bit. And, uh, you know, he's uh, one of the foremost experts on the, the history. Right, he's uh, the best, subject. man. Um, and it's cool that, you know, like what we were talking about even before the break about like the before and after of uh, Prohibition. You know, before we were, even with cocktails, it was a lot of, you know, stirred, boozy, bitter. And then by the time you reach the end of Prohibition, this is when like, you know, 34-ish, you know, we've got, like, all these tiki bars starting to pop up. And so, from the beginning to the end of Prohibition, I guess this would go back to what you were saying about having your different, like, themes of bars, you know? Like, you can actually have a tropical bar. and you yeah. can have, I mean, like, these were designed to shock and awe new audiences that yeah. maybe wouldn't go into a bar that often or just wanted something new and exciting because inherently, if it's illegal, it's new and exciting. Sure. <laughs> I only try to do illegal things. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, speakeasies that um, were probably already experimenting with rums because it was another thing that they could get that was coming in from out of the country as well. Yeah, and then, you know, you have people traveling specifically to, to get away get from away, and yeah, yeah, and, you know, that's when you get drinks like the 10-mile limit, the 12-mile limit, and, um, you know, then obviously the drinks that are abroad, all the bartenders that were saying, I'm not going to be a criminal, I'm going to go to a country where I'm appreciated, and, you know the New York, Harry's New York bar and all those, which I think, you know, the misconception is those popped up after we made it illegal. But the American bar was something that was a phenomenon before that. But really, they finally got the talent, the American talent to do things, you know, like the Bloody Mary and the sidecar and really these, you know, incredible drinks that still are in the lexicon today, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I love a Bloody Mary in the morning. Thing is, like, I, I know, like, a lot of bartenders, uh, it's a point of contention for them to, like, make a Bloody Mary at night. But you got to think about it, man. It's really easy to make. The, I mean, if you have your spices together. Yeah, you know. but it's also but, one of those things, like, there's this weird stigma, like, like you can't have one after, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon yeah, or something like that. But it was know. a really, <laughs> it was always a very popular drink to have any time. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny. I'll do... Uh, 
you know, I work Sunday brunches with, you know, at Prime Meats, and then I work Sunday nights as well. And then a lot of the times I've made probably, you know, 100 Bloody Marys, but I come home at 9 o'clock and my, my girlfriend May wants a Bloody Mary. I have no problem with that. Yeah. And I, I have one too, even though I've made, a, you know, a million of them. I don't think it's an issue as long as your head is in the right space, you know. Yeah, I think it's also an issue of usually, like, at that time of night, they probably don't have anything prepared, you know, and it, it's that it's funny to see it. And I've been in this position too to see a bartender scramble for a can of B8, <laughs> right? Exactly, but yeah, I mean, like, if you think about back in those days, there were so many, like, like a bull shot, you know, that would be a great thing to have at night, you know, with some beef bouillon and and you know, like. These savory drinks. Have you that, done that? I, you know, I've only been at Primates so long. Have you guys ever done that? Con- considering you know the amount of uh, red meat that yeah. goes through there, we've we've played around with it. Yeah, but I don't think it's. Ever, <laughs> I figured you've you know to some extent. It might not make it onto the menu anytime soon, but we, <laughs> I think we could perfect it and make it uh, unique in a, in a very cool way. Um, but yeah, I mean, like uh, going back to uh, the the tiki thing again. Um, I think it was also like you know we're going into World War Two and you know people are traveling even more so we're getting all these Polynesian ingredients but there then comes the fifties and it was almost like a another thing that happened with like a kind of a like a secret prohibition you know because like all these no people, I, like I the martini boom and that's like interesting it, you mentioned with that vodka and, uh, I feel that I feel it's almost a, a cultural reaction in a sense that. The Prohibition era was extremely chaotic at home, and then the war era was extremely chaotic abroad. And then you just wanted, uh, you know, I think the American collective as a reaction just wanted some peace and stability. And what ended up happening was like Eisenhower hour conformity, you know. And it just, it's, uh, it's very weird to think that those eras preceded it, you know, and to have the uh, one glass you know, simple bar, you know, after that, you know, but it makes sense if you wanted your perfect society. I mean, it's almost as if the dries just had a sort of cultural win during that period more than anything. Yeah. Yes. Our, our drinking history, our cultural and uh, imbibing history of the United States is very interesting, man. And I think that's like why both you and I got into it, you know, in the yeah, first definitely. Place. And, I, you know, it's funny too, when you look back, I'm sure you have, lessons you had as a you know kid in high school or even younger about history and then you look back and go oh man they were drinking a lot during that period of time (laughs) you know johnny appleseed was not planting apple trees because he likes apples he likes apple brandy and he likes (laughs) apple cider and you know it's it's funny you just look back and you're like oh if i only had that information in fourth grade i could really (laughs) cause some chaos exactly right (laughs) Well, that's about it for the show today. Garrett, thank you so much for coming on. Um, happy oh, no Repeal problem. Day, and uh, please come back on sometime soon, anytime you'd like. I love it. Uh, Thanks, I just, Simon. I just want to say again, uh, Happy Repeal Day, and thank you so much to Heritage Radio Network for having me on. This is my two-year anniversary today as well, and uh, I, I just want to say thanks to Jack and Aaron oh, and, and Patrick and uh, Joe and everyone here, and thank you to all the guests that have come on over the last two years. All right, guys. That's it for the Speakeasy today. Be safe. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.